0: We continue to uh, dive into the ten words, the ten commandments, the Decalogue, uh, these instructions, principles, commands for how God would have us to live. As Jesus would later say, of how to love God and love our neighbor. Now, if you grew up with the King James Version or have seen, signs around even plaques in various public spaces with the ten commandments you'll know the commandment we're looking at today the sixth commandment as thou shalt not kill that's the translation most of us have seen Uh, it's brief in the hebrew just two words in fact the next two commandments are each two words and so we'll To understand it, to unpack it, we will do some more exploring throughout the Bible. And we will find here in the case of this commandment, and and the next two as well, but we're just going to look at this one today. We'll find a, a deep and profound truth. That means less than, do not kill, thou shalt not kill, but it also means much, much more now, what does it mean? Well, let's dig in here and review all of the commands in, in a shortened form. So read with me in Exodus chapter 20, verses one through 17. This is God's word. <clears throat> then God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out." of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother and our focus today verse 13 you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor this is god's word father would you meet us here Would you shape our hearts, our character, and shape our lives by your word? It is trustworthy and true. Sanctify us, set us apart by it, for your word is truth. We pray, trusting your spirit to work with your word, because we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Years ago when we lived in Tennessee, we actually lived within a city proper, but it was a very small town. We had a decent sized yard with lots of plants and things and one of our our neighbors came by one day to offer us, I think it was maybe some hostas. She had cut hers up and was dividing them and was offering to share them with us and as she was preparing to leave after giving these uh, plants to Julia, my wife, she said in passing almost, oh, hey, by the way, I think one of your kids left a toy snake in the sidewalk in front of your house, to which Julia said, I, I don't think we have any toy snakes and I, I'm sure we don't have any toy snakes outside, and the neighbor said, well, then I'm pretty sure you probably have a copperhead on your sidewalk, bye. And she left. And Julia said, what? I wasn't home, but Julia's from Texas. And she knows how to handle snakes. (laughs) Uh, And so she said, I'll go get a shovel or a hoe and chop off its head and kill this snake. But unfortunately, she said that in front of this neighbor as the neighbor was departing. And the neighbor said, you can't do that. What? Julia said. Well, you can't kill it," the neighbor said, because poisonous snakes are protected in the state of Tennessee. Then she said, "Bye," and went on her way home. To which Julius, there now thinking, "Well, I, I don't want to break the law, but I also really don't want a copperhead in my yard, and I have young children, I don't want anyone to get hurt by this thing." So not only being from Texas, but being very creative and innovative and brave. Again, I wasn't home, and I'm not regretting that. (laughs) She managed to wrestle this snake, and this wasn't a part of Tennessee where they do snake handling, by the way. Different story. Uh, But she, she managed to get this snake down to a different part of our driveway and trapped it under a big Tupperware container, a big plastic container. Uh, more to that story could tell you some other time. But she got it trapped under this and, and, and put some rocks on top of the container and called animal control but they were closed for the day. So piled more rocks on top of the container and first thing in the morning and again I headed off to work and uh, she called animal control who comes out not believing that First of all, the snake's going to be there, and not believing, second of all, that it's a copperhead, and kind of being a little patronizing and condescending to my wife. Uh, But, sure enough, it was there, and it was a copperhead. And the animal control officer says to my wife, Okay, you stand there, and I'll show you how to kill this snake. And she says, I'm sure graciously, I know how to kill a snake. I thought I wasn't allowed to. I thought it was illegal. And he said, oh, oh, you're right, actually. The laws of Tennessee do say that poisonous snakes are a protected species. Uh, and in fact, as we looked into it later on, we learned, well, it's because they kill varmints. Varmints. Okay? That's what you got to say in Tennessee. They kill varmints. They kill other critters we don't want around. Which is fine and good. But, he said, he didn't say all that. I added that in, right? Okay, so he said, yes, poisonous snakes are a protected species throughout the state of Tennessee. And then he said, however, this wise, liberating truth came out of his mouth. However, the animal control officers said, In Tennessee, human beings are also a protected species, a more protected species, in fact. And the choirs were singing and angels were shouting, Hallelujah! And Amen. And he went on to say, So, ma'am, if you feel threatened and You have kids at home, so you should feel threatened with a copperhead anywhere near your house. If you feel threatened, you may kill any snake. Now, some people say you shouldn't kill snakes and all that kind of thing. But listen, if you have a poisonous snake near your children, near your house, you're going to want to take it out, right? You need to get rid of it. You want to kill it. And this truth that that animal control officer shared with us applies not just to the state of Tennessee, okay? And not just to these United States, and not just to some part of the world and for some part of the time. This is an abiding principle in the Word of God. And in fact, what he said captures the heart of this commandment. Human beings are a protected species. More protected than poisonous snakes, more protected than any other species, human beings are valuable and precious, more precious than anything else on the planet in the eyes of God. That's what this command is all about, in fact. The Lord calling us to see human beings the way He sees them, to value them and consider them as precious, exceedingly precious to us. Fellow human beings, to love your neighbor, in other words, not only... You not only must refrain from taking their life but you must also work for their good that's what this command is about as we'll unpack it today that to love your neighbor you must not only refrain from taking their physical life but you must also work for their good so as we continue exploring this part of the commands, which all tell us how to love our neighbor, right? The first ones were about how to love God, and now fully into how to love our neighbors. It's about more than, you know, loving snakes or hating snakes, as the case may be, right? It's about human beings and our very special status. We are a protected species. What does that mean? Well, let's look at, first of all, why are human beings a protected species? Why? Why is that the case? Why is this command here, in other words? Because human beings are alone as the image of God. On all the planets, human beings alone are the image of God, they are like God and different from other creatures that's human beings alone is the image of God like God and different from other creatures this this unique status of human beings was secured from the very beginning from creation the way God made human beings alone as his image after his own likeness Genesis 1 26 through 28 tell us that it is Him who was created in the likeness and image of God. It is them, male and female, that God said, let us make in our image. Speaking among the Godhead. You know, we we were made from the earth, from the dust of the earth, and after the fall, cursed to return to that earth. But to be alive, to be human, is to have God breathe life into creation. Something more than just stuff. Just material. Something more than that is going on. That God has given us, in a sense, of Himself. Made us in His image. Given us from His Spirit. A precious gift. Not given to any other creature. As you go through Genesis 1 and you read of all the things that God created and that refrain of God spoke and this happened, right? And it was good. God said this and that, and it was good. The the place at the very end, after the creation of humanity, male and female, God then said, and only then did he say, it was very good. Exceedingly good. The sense of it all, as you look at the creation account, is to say that God made this wonderful place, this wonderful creation, and all of these things, and all of these animals, and all this variety. And above all else he made human beings and that made it very good exceedingly good we are human beings like god and we are different from other creatures we we are in a sense lesser copies of god there's some debate about what exactly is the image and likeness of god there's a consensus, pretty much, that those are the same meanings. You know, image and likeness; those are not two different things. That has been debated in the past, but pretty much, most Orthodox theologians would say they're kind of they're synonyms. They're made in the image and likeness of God. But what is the image and likeness of God? What is it in us or about us that makes us the image and likeness? What did God do, or how do we become that? Is it the fact that we rule over creation? Is it is it Does it include our bodies? Is it just that we have a soul and a reasonable mind where we can be rational and think and feel and all those kind of things? Uh, To be blunt, the Scriptures don't really spell it out. They don't nail it down for us so there's some wiggle room in what exactly that means. It's very clear that we are in His image and likeness. And that makes us different from the rest of creation. But what precisely it is, it's, it's hard to nail it down and say, I'm gonna die on this hill. Uh, but among the things that it does seem to mean is that when we were created, before the fall, that we had a true knowledge of God and of ourselves. We had righteousness. We were right with God, upright like God in that way of knowing what to do with life. We were holy along the lines of, of what God is, set apart like God. And if you dig down in the context of Genesis chapter 1, where he's speaking of creating the man the woman there towards the end of chapter 1 in Genesis, it seems to me that you could kind of boil down what the likeness and image of God in us or, or with us or how we are the image of God essentially boils down to the fact that we were created to be able to relate to him in profoundly deep ways, that we could speak to him as almost not quite an equal. But to be on the, the level of something more than, you know, a cat or a dog or a giraffe, much less a tree, or a protoplasm, or some sort of plankton in the ocean, okay? We we, we are towering above those other creatures and still below God, but enough like God that we could have a relationship with Him, not unlike human beings, that we are personal, relational beings. We were made not only to relate to Him, but, but to have this task to be in creation relating to the rest of creation in a parallel and analogy to how God is above everything, including us. So you have God over all, and then you've got everything that's not God, right? And then within that not God realm, you have human beings over all, and then everything that's not human. There's a kind of parallelism. There's a kind of uh, reflection of God that He has given to us in creating us. That we are not merely just another animal. That we have a dignity and a value and a role and abilities that are beyond other animals. Certainly, you can see that compared to a tree. But even compared to an ape or a donkey or a camel, or a dog, or a cat, or anything else in all of creation. We, human beings, are like God and different from other creatures. One theologian summarizes it this way. The likeness of God extends to the whole excellence by which human nature towers over all kinds of living creatures it's kind of like that definition of you know how do you know it well you know i can't really define it but i know it when i see it right that's, that's what's going on here in fact you know if you think about it uh, if you have a pet if you have like a dog or something especially that 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 you feel strong affection for and you know when you come home that that dog seems to greet you and be excited to see you and you feel that connection and you even kind of attribute human responses to the dog, right? And you're like, oh, he knows this and that, you know, he's responding to this or that, he's sad, this, right? All those things, right? When you experience that, you are mirroring and reflecting something of the way God intends for us to relate to Him. We are way above a dog. No offense to dogs, but we are way above dogs. And in that sense, that we are mirroring. you are the same delight Sometimes as you as you you know love your pet and experience that joy of the pet relating to you, thank God for that and say, Lord, wow, this is this helps me understand. Take some time to reflect on that. God, this is this is how I ought to be responding to you. You know, when you enter my life, for good or bad, I should be like wagging my tail, right? I should be happy. Because you provide for me and you're really there's so much deeper and more profound even than that a picture of our relationships and how we relate to God. It's more than that, though. So it's, it's we alone, uh, human beings, are the image of God. We're like God and different from the rest of creation. But we also need to recognize that, that we are at the same time broken. We are broken, but not completely undone. You know, we did not, put it this way, we, we didn't lose the image of God when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. You know, we are still in the image of God. We still are the image of God, but we are broken. Not completely undone. You can see that in a lot of places in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7. Uh, James 3, 9 says of, of the tongue, you know, we use it to curse uh, men created in the image of God. You can see that in other places as well. There's some scriptures you could look up. That despite sin, we are still the image of God. We, we still reflect it no matter how we are in our relationship to God. Paul speaks in Romans 2 of how even those who live apart from the law still obey the law. They show that the law is written on their hearts, that they know right from wrong deep down. They are the image of God. You know, when Cain killed his brother Abel there in Genesis 4, God didn't need to explain to Cain that that was wrong. (laughs) Cain hid. Cain denied it. He knew what he had done was wrong. He hid the body. And in his grace, though, God made things more clear. And he said, especially after the flood in Genesis 9, reiterating, who we are and how we ought to live. Genesis 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons after the flood and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same as Adam and Eve, right? Then verse two of chapter nine of Genesis, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. This seems to be a little new. God did not say that in Genesis one. He said, be fruitful, multiply. And he said, I've given you to exercise dominion over all. But here he is explicitly saying, you know what? Everything in creation is going to have a strained relationship with you they're going to be afraid of you and they will dread you and it's even as the language here of i have uh, uh into your hand verse 2 genesis 9 says into your hand they are delivered that's the normal word for giving but in the te- in the in the the grammar there And in context of uh, similar context, the sense of there is, I have delivered all those things into your hands. They are at your power, their life and their death. They are in your hands. And in fact, then verse 3 kind of amplifies it Genesis 9 3 Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you. Everything. It seems like, we don't have time to go into this, uh, but it's a very interesting study. It sounds like maybe we were vegetarians before the fall. And now after the fall, we get to eat meat. And I can't imagine that because, man, I really love meat. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Uh, that's what it seems to be saying. But now here it is saying that that is okay. That God has given to us to take the life of animals just to eat them. Right, and we should still, of course, be good stewards of them, and not be wasteful. We don't just kill for hobby and sports. Right, there's a sense where we should be good stewards, and we sh- we are able to kill poisonous snakes that come near our house. Right, that's justified. They are in our hands. Every animal, every beast. But he says, "What you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. Don't eat the blood." Now, there's a way more to that than we have time to get into what that exactly means, but it's, it's very clear, don't eat the blood. Uh, there's reasons for it and that kind of thing. We don't have time to get into. Genesis 9.5 then makes it really clear that hey, those are animals, that's the rest of creation, but humanity is still alone in the image of God and very special. Verse 5 of chapter 9 of Genesis, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. He's saying that if a human being dies, I will require a reckoning. There will be a consequence. It goes on. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by a man shall his blood be shed. For God made men in his own image. Right there is the proof text for what we call capital punishment for the death penalty. God is saying that humanity is so special that if you shed the blood of a human being, you forfeit your life. For God made man humanity in his own image. That's what it is. Says. Verse 7 of Genesis 9, And you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. The human species is protected. The human being is so valuable in God's sight that he says, if you kill a human being, you forfeit your life. He repeats that several times in that passage. I'll require a reckoning. I'll require a reckoning. Human beings can kill animals. But you may not kill human beings except that the life of human beings is so precious in God's sight that he says the consequences are that he does, in a sense, what he doesn't want to do. Right? He says, because it's so broken, because you would take another human being's life, you forfeit your life. So that Says the command then is not no killing. The command is do not murder. And we don't have time to go into it again, but if you look through the scriptures, especially about the cities of refuge in Numbers 35, it's very clear that that killing is specifically murder, which could in fact be because you weren't taking good care of your animals and you knew they were a risk and they hurt other people and killed them. But it doesn't include what we would call involuntary manslaughter where you accidentally kill someone. That God would protect that. That his goal here is to say, you know what, put it out of your mind that you can kill somebody. And if in your brokenness and sin, you kill someone, if it's by accident, we'll make sure you are protected. There might be consequences, and there always are. But if it's murder, if you willfully take someone else's life, even in the heat of the moment, even in an argument, you've forfeited your life. It's that profound. In other words, despite the protected status, in fact, because of the protected status, justice sometimes requires taking a human life. And we could take into that, and again, I feel like I'm saying this every minute or so, we don't have time to deal with it, but that would include then a doctrine of just war, where it is just to engage in war. To be a soldier is not to be sinful in and of itself. That is something that God calls us to in in this world, in this season. In a fallen world, that something that God requires. The command is, you shall not murder. Not, you shall not kill. Because human beings are created in the image of God. It is, in a sense, that simple. But it's more profound. If we we get under that a little bit, do you realize what's going on there? That the reason human beings are so protected and precious in God's sight is is because we are like Him. That for us to kill another human being is for us to strike at who God is. To say, I don't like what you made, God, and I'm going to obliterate it for my own sake. And to say, even on top of that, that God, I don't like your plan, which is for human beings to be fruitful and multiply. And so I will take that human being out so that not only are we not being fruitful and multiplying, but we are being reduced. It strikes at God's very mission and at God's character of who God is and what he's about. That's, That's what's wrong with murder that's where God is going with this. And it gets even more interesting as we think, okay, so God is protecting human life because we alone are the image of God. So how do we protect this species? How, How do we value humanity? We need to recognize that we are together, as human beings, we are together in the mercy of God, or in the love of God, and that's our second point, just a few things under it. We are together in the mercy of God. That means this commandment requires us to make plans to protect and preserve life. It is not sufficient for us to say, oh, bummer. You fell off of my roof when I had stairs going up there. It's your fault. The word of God literally commands that we would put a parapet in those days around the roof. There were usually stairs. You would go up there to dry things out. And and it was a cooler place at night. Those kind of things. right? And God says, value life so much that you'll put a railing around those kind of places. It is, in other words, negligence. And we are responsible if we don't think through how our actions will affect other human beings, especially if they will potentially harm them. God provides that same thing for harmful animals. If you have an animal that is known to hurt human beings, especially. You're responsible. I don't personally, I don't think we do enough to enforce those realities. I read too many times of of pit bulls attacking people. That's not okay. And the owners are responsible and sometimes people are foolish. But the question would be, were you doing enough Did you think through and make plans to protect and preserve life? Or did you just think about what you wanted and what was best for you without regard for other human beings, which is the nature of the command, right? That we would love God. And this area is what? Loving neighbor. That means that we are, unlike Cain who killed Abel and said, am I my brother's keeper? It means we are our brother's keeper. That's the implicit demand of that passage. That we would care. That we would care enough. That we would put fences around animals. Uh, that we would put railings around high places. That we would drive responsibly. Wielding a two-ton death machine, right? You ever think about that's what a car is, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a loaded gun. Do you say to yourself, I'll just text real quick. You're going 60 miles an hour, how far do you go while you're reading the text, much less trying to answer it? I'm not saying I'm perfect on that one either. But that is an area of responsibility, of how we implement the the command, thou shalt not murder. We need to value life, to plan and protect and preserve life. Maybe you need to put the phone in your trunk when you drive if you're tempted. Make sure it's up, you know, get a headset. Use Siri or some other voice things. You know, there, there's a, the, the, this is also why we should have warning labels on things. This is why it's not merely catering to snowflakes or whatever you want to say, that we would not have peanuts in classrooms and stuff. They're, they're, speaking of someone who has a parent of a, of a peanut allergy child, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. It could literally kill someone. So this is part of what it means for us to be together in the love of God, that we would plan to protect and preserve life. You know, I remember as I think maybe a 10-year-old using the bathroom at the house of some friends of ours. And I don't know how. I think it was maybe because at another relative's house, one of the children in that house showed me where their father kept the pornography. The magazines with naked women in them, to be super clear. And I th- went to another house of another family friend, and sure enough, the same place. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but that is a failure to keep this command. Those grown ups put this child in harm's way. Parents, what are you doing to make sure your children are reasonably safe in using their devices and using the internet? Please don't do nothing but pursue it. I would recommend the uh, organization called AXIS, A-X-I-S, Christian organization. We've used them to, to implement screen policies and to understand the issues. There are, there, are, there are services like Covenant Eyes that protect not only children but grown-ups. There's a service called Bark. Kids hate it, so it's got to be good. Uh, we, we use that one. Uh, but th- this is part of how do we protect how do we plan to protect and preserve life especially among the vulnerable and of course this would apply to young and old you know the command very explicitly rules out euthanasia there is no nowhere in scriptures will you will find that it's okay to kill for your convenience, or for your quality of life. And again, we don't have time to drill down into, what does that mean if someone is on a respirator? When do you quote, unquote, pull the plug? It's more than, it's more complicated than that, but I want you to realize that whenever you make those decisions, God has to be factoring in, and you have to be thinking, how am I protecting and preserving life? How am I honoring this human being, including yourself? Because you are precious and valuable in the sight of God. Every single human being. Jesus is super clear about that, brothers and sisters. Pastor Dave read the passage in, in the Scripture reading and talked about the children's sermon, and we don't have time to really unpack it. But the gist of it is, is this, that we are not only to make plans to protect and preserve life, but we are to make life better for others. That doesn't mean you don't matter, right? That's not saying forget about yourself and your own needs. But to factor into our decision-making and our actions in life is that we should be making life better for others. That's the way I paraphrase the Scripture passage in Matthew 5, 21-26, where Jesus, for his first deep dive into what it looks like to live in the kingdom in that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to the first thing after setting the table for us and talking about... What is righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? The very first commandment he goes to to say, let me explain it to you, is this one. He says, you've heard, Matthew 5.21, the agents were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever gets murder shall be liable to the court. He's talking about what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to live in the kingdom? And he says, Well, let me start with the sixth commandment that you've heard, you shall not commit murder. Verse 22 of Matthew 5, he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus makes the leap from physical murder, as we would think of it, to a desire to eliminate others which is where anger ultimately leads to, right? If you you are on that slippery slope, as we're talking about with the youth, of attacking, the ultimate end of that is that you would kill someone. It's your desire for them to go away. Your desire for them to stop annoying you. Your desire for them to drive better in traffic and not pull up alongside of you at the stop sign while you're trying to turn left too. And then they turn left and they're in the wrong lane. And they just jump out in front of the people and they almost get in an accident. And they back up and then they go and they make everyone else move. And then they go up on the curb and across the sidewalk. If your desire in that moment <laughs> leads you to, Jesus says next, say to your brother, you good for nothing, or to say, you fool, or to say, what came out of my mouth on Friday afternoon, I was driving up here to the church building for a meeting, having studied this passage and prepared this outline and being ready to preach it, what came out of my mouth as this person pulled up alongside me, breaking one law and then another law, and just really annoying me, a word I will not say, and a word I have not said in like 20 years just comes out of my mouth. And I'm like, not that bothered by it in the moment. And then I, this morning, and then I repented of it that night. I was thinking about it and struck by just, <laughs> I really need Jesus. This morning, I, I, almost, called, I almost described that situation and, and used a less strong word, more like jerk, which is not unlike what the word Jesus is using here when he says you fool or good for nothing, you're a jerk. I almost used that word. I'm like, I bit my tongue. It didn't come out. That's a victory, right? Next step, get it out of the heart. That's what Jesus is driving at here. He's saying that trajectory, this command is meant to penetrate well beyond any physical action out in the world. It is about our hearts being messed up before God, of not getting what he actually wants from us, the depth of what he would care about, and the the profound value of human life. That it's not merely an assault against God's character and plan for us to take human life, it's an assault against God's character and plan for us to just get angry with other people in sinful ways for us to put others down with our words or our actions, for us to judge and condemn. One theologian put it this way. We are not to consider what men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men. To which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse him help. Say, he's contemptible and worthless. But the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. That's every human being. Redeemed. reprobate friend or enemy every human being do you value them every human being every human being every human being there is not one human being who does not merit, your concern, your proactive attention for their good. There is not one human being, the most contemptible and worthless human being. God would say to you, you still ought to want what's best for them. Now bear in mind, that often means you would want consequences. That means... You would often want justice to be served. They still are to be valued and protected. Brothers and sisters, again, we don't have time to get into it, but this is one of the problems in our justice system when we talk about capital punishment and the death penalty. There are too many people who are not... Guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, right? We are quick to condemn and corrupt in a lot of places. So don't hear me saying the death penalty itself is unilaterally and unequivocally without a problem. I do hear me saying it has problems. It's the implementation of it. And we ought to be willing, if we value human beings, we ought to be willing to say, hmm, have we done all that we can? Whether you're guilty or innocent. If you take that extent, Jesus is not letting us off the hook. Why is that? What is going on here? And how, how can we be motivated by this? Because the underlying reality is the one who is speaking to us and saying I value human life this much above everything else is the one who what? Entered human life. This is the one who says I value human life enough that I will set aside my glory. I will set aside my riches as Philippians 2 would put it. I will set aside all that heaven has to offer. All that this relationship with the Father and the Spirit has. And I will come and I will take on human nature. I will dwell among my creation. I will suffer even though I do everything right. I will be unjustly treated and killed, murdered, on a torture device. And worse than that, I will take the just wrath of God that says sin deserves hell. And I will take that upon myself because I value human life. Do you realize how that levels you and I and our standing before God? We have nothing more to contribute to our salvation, then we were created in God's image. And who can take credit for that? Only God Himself. We come as beggars, To receive the riches of God, who would have been just to send every one of us to hell. In fact, to never have us be born, but to end it all when Adam and Eve sinned. But in his grace and mercy, he says, I value humanity. I want to teach you something about what love is. And I want to teach you about who you are. And I will come and die for you. I will take your sin away. And, and and he does more than that. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you begin to become like Jesus. And you do crazy things like foster care and bringing people that are strangers and needy into your house. You do crazy things like going on an Amnion Walkathon or contributing and supporting a ministry that tries to help other people from making bad decisions, you'll do crazy things like sacrifice a Sunday afternoon to minister to people who, who who just come up. I'm not I'm not exaggerating. There was one kid who had his candy bucket at the kids' fair last week, and would get it filled up, and then would go off and, and empty it out, and then come up and say, "I didn't get any candy," <laughs> and go around. And it's like we we were going to give you candy anyway, you know. So what do you do? do, I mean, that's a good picture of very much of what ministry is like, right? People undeserving, people who don't say thank you, who don't appreciate what you have to offer, kind of like you and I do with God. (laughs) And yet in His grace and mercy, He has saved us. He has done this for us. And he has said, it's going to be so much better. He said, I I go and prepare a place for you and, and you will come and you will be with me. And he paints a picture of that in Revelation 21, this time when there's a new heaven and a new earth. When death itself is swallowed up, when he himself wipes every tear from our eyes, there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more mourning, crying, or pain. And God will make all things new. Take away, as Isaiah 25 says. He will swallow up death, wipe our tears away, and remove the reproach. He will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on his mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Swallowing up death, wiping tears away, removing the reproach. This is what God offers to you and I who totally don't deserve it. What if, what if we caught that vision? And what if when that guy pulls up to me at the thing and he's going, I'm just, I stopped and was just like praying for him. I told you about that one time I did that, didn't I? I was driving, new Christian, that's why I was better at it. I was a new Christian, full of the Spirit, just alive, right? You know, I'm recently minted Christian. Some guy driving erratically all through, you know, cutting people off, speeding down, like I would have been doing like a couple of months before Jesus met me, Right. And, 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 and I had this sincere desire for this person's good. I was like, Lord, they're going to hurt somebody. They're going to hurt themselves. And as the words were forming in my mind, woo, you know, I was like, wow, cool. God sent a cop car and they pulled the person over. Like, what if, what if, what if we grew in that way and were able to do that in, in our lives? You know, what, what if we bit our tongues more? What if we sacrificed more? Well, that's, that's the trajectory. right? And it starts with this acknowledgement that human beings, every single one, is a protected species. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Thank you for your grace and mercy that though our sins deserve death, that we have earned death, your gift is eternal life. Lord, help us to understand that more fully, to extend that life, not merely in the physical realm, but spiritually and attitudinally, that we would be a people growing more and more in loving and protecting human beings made in your image. Lord, would that transform our Facebook feeds, our political discourses, our marketplace, our workplaces, all our homes and neighborhoods? Lord, would would you do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.